Shortly, please start taking your seats. We would like to welcome all of you to CSIS, but before we begin today's events, I need to make a few brief security announcements. We feel very safe and secure in our building here at CSIS. In the very unlikely occasion of an emergency, we ask that you remain calm and follow any instructions and alarms that are made. Please also take a moment to look at the safety card on your tables and locate the nearest exit. CSIS is very proud to co-host this fourth annual ROK US Strategic Forum with the Korea Foundation. Thank you, Ambassador Lee, and welcome to our distinguished delegation from the Korea Foundation. On behalf of CSIS and the Korea Chair, I would also like to extend a very warm welcome and thank you to our sponsors, our Silver Level sponsor, the American Chamber of Commerce in Korea, our Gold Level sponsor, the Ch Korean Chamber of Commerce and Industry, and our special sponsor, Corestone. To begin today's events, I would like to invite to the stage CSIS trustee and president of Armitage International, Ambassador Richard Armitage. Please join me in giving him a warm welcome. Well, good morning. I think we've got some fun planned for you today. Uh, I'm Rich Armitage, I'm a trustee here, and I'm standing in for our president, uh, Dr. John Hammering, uh, for this morning's uh, festivities. Look, we've got a big day ahead of you, and as Marie said, this is our fourth strategic forum. We're delighted to be with the uh, Korean Foundation. Uh, we're delighted with the collaboration and delighted to have them uh, sailing alongside of us for this. And then tonight, of course, we're gonna have the commemoration of the 10th year of the Korea chair. Uh, that will be a reception, uh, a presentation, and then an, a, another excellent panel. So we've got three panels this afternoon. You got an excellent speech by Congressman Dr. Ami Berra, uh, who will follow uh, Ambassador Lee's remarks. Uh, and I think we can promise you some real fun. Now, I can't prove this to you, but I'm thinking something's going on. Let me see, our president gets a beautiful letter and Kim 3.0 gets an excellent letter. And our president also gets a birthday card or a letter from Kim 3.0. Uh, so it seemed Osaka is coming up. Uh, president Trump's going to, uh, going to Seoul on the weekend. Uh, and finally, Xi Jinping had his state visit to the DPRK. So I think something's afoot. But here's the rub. It looks to me like we are going to have step-by-step -step moves toward denuclearization. I'm not opposed to that. But the trick is, how do you do that in a way that doesn't in some way uh, fudge our equities with the Republic of Korea or with Japan? So we've got to be very carefully and approach this very carefully. And I'm sure that the three panelists this afternoon uh, and our uh, panel this evening will be addressing those issues and an awful lot more. So again, let me welcome you to CSIS uh, with the warmest welcome to Ambassador Lee and the Korean Foundation. And I think without fear of any contradiction, uh, you're gonna find it a pretty fulfilling day. And you'll get lunch as well. So, what's wrong? when is that ever wrong? So, welcome. Thank you.
Thank you, Ambassador Armitage. Please now welcome to the stage Korea Foundation President, Ambassador Lee. What a change. I, I thought I was in Beijing. Uh, must be the color of celebration of 10th anniversary of Chi, I guess. Well, it's not bad. I have uh, blue ties, but, well, I like red colors also. Well, uh, many familiar faces. Um, Ambassador Richard Armitage, thank you for your kind introduction. And President John Henry and uh, Honorable Congressman Ami Vera and General Vincent Brooks, Ambassador Mark Lippert. I saw Ambassador Thomas Herbert some here. Very glad to see you everyone here, distinguished delegates, guests, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, very good morning and welcome to the ROK US Strategic Forum 2019. The fourth iteration of this annual forum co-hosted by CSIS and the Korea Foundation. Well, first and foremost, on behalf of the Korea Foundation, I would like to express my sincere gratitude to all of you for joining today, despite your busy schedules. My special thanks go to Professor Victor Cha and the staff of Korea Chair at the CSIS for their exceptional preparation for this event. I'm also particularly glad that Congressman Ami Vera, Chair of the Congressional Study Group on Korea, has found time to share his views with us today. I'm honored that I could receive him, not once, but twice in Seoul recently. Well, ladies and gentlemen, the Korea Foundation had organized forums in conjunction with other institution, institutes in Washington, D.C. for some years before launching the ROK-US Strategic Forum in 2016 in partnership with CSIS. In less than three years, we have successfully positioned this event to serve as a comprehensive dialogue channel between policy experts from the US and Korea, allowing for discussion of critical matters that affect the common interests of both nations. Without a doubt, this forum stands head and shoulders above the more than a dozen similar events that Korea Foundation annually presents in cooperation with its foreign partners. I have a personal attachment to this ROK-US Strategic Forum. In 2016, upon assuming office as the president of the Korea Foundation, I found CSIS to be the best partner with which to launch this event. It is not difficult to come to that conclusion, considering the CSIS Korea chair was already well established at the time. I have since participated for four consecutive years, and it has always been my honor and privilege to have the opportunity to open the forum and welcome you. This year marks the 10th anniversary of the CSIS Korea Chair. Congratulations. Through the establishment of the position in 2009, CSIS has initiated in-depth discussions and carried out important policy research related to Korea at every critical moment for the Korean Peninsula and Northeast Asia. For all this, my special thanks 
goes to President John Hamley, as well as Professor Victor Chap and his staff members, and to all of CSIS for their dedication and hard work in making this forum possible for the first time. Through CSIS and the Korea Foundation's strong partnership, the Korea Chair will no doubt continue to play a significant role in fortifying the ROK-US alliance into the next decade and beyond. When the first ROK-US strategic forum took place in late 2016, maximum pressure and strategic patience were still almost the only policy options employed by the US toward North Korea. At the time, I tried to convey a message to my American friends that the window of dialogue should be kept open to North Korea while maintaining our basic position. I believe that the pressure without dialogue was unlikely to change North Korea's behavior. Well, in September 2017, the second ROK-US strategic forum was held during an exceptionally dramatic moment. Only two days before the scheduled date of our forum, North Korea tested their sixth nuclear weapon, which they claimed was a hydrogen bomb. It was too early for us at the time to be sure if the tested nuclear weapon was really a hydrogen bomb, or even if the test really had been successful. The Korean delegation tried to deliver a message that peace should be the top priority in any case, and that it was time for the US and the ROK to seriously engage North Korea to stop their provocation. But for the Trump administration, a bloody nose was still an option, and tensions between the US and North Korea escalated until the PyeongChang Winter Olympic Games in February of the following year. While well, in 2018, last year, the Korea Foundation and CSIS agreed for our forum to be held in the wake of Singapore summit, no matter when it would take place. The summit was scheduled, canceled, and finally revived, and so was our meeting accordingly. We finally gathered a week after the Singapore meeting. Assessment of the summit varied from person to person, but in my view, it is hard to deny that at least the risk of physical conflict on the Korean Peninsula had been further reduced as a result of this meeting. Then came the Hanoi summit. Well, apparently, Chairman Kim was shocked at the position of the US, which was far tougher than what we, he had expected. Instead of slamming the door behind him, however, he kept it open for an additional round of talks. It is taking Chairman Kim already several months to appraise the result of the meeting and to see his next move. In the meantime, he and President Trump have repeatedly confirmed their intentions of holding another round of meetings. According to media in Seoul and Beijing, Chairman Kim related to President Xi Jinping during his visit to Pyongyang last week that he had made several positive measures throughout the year to ease tensions, but they did not seem to have been duly considered by the relevant country. While expressing his disappointment, he stressed that he would remain patient to solve the issues facing the peninsula, which is, I think, a good sign. Well, it is not yet clear if or when the third U.S.-North Korea summit will take place. 
President Trump keeps sending kind words to Chairman Kim, but also recently signed a document to renew U.S. sanction measures against North Korea. Still, expectations for sustainable peace remain high in Seoul as a series of contacts between the leaders of the Republic of Korea, North Korea, the U.S., and China have been made and planned. I suppose professional analysis will be provided by the panelists during the sessions today. There are many topics open to consideration, including last week's summit between China and North Korea, a planned summit between the U.S. and China in Osaka, and scheduled a visit by President Trump to Seoul. Well, uh, in addition to monitoring uh, interactions between the leaders of the region, it is interesting to note that President Moon Jae-in publicly sent a message to Chairman Kim during his recent visit to Scandinavia. In his speech to the Swedish parliament exactly 10 days ago, he urged North Korea that if sanction measures were to be lifted, the country would need to prove its genuine intentions for complete denuclearization and peace building. To this end, he said, continued bilateral and multilateral dialogues with members of the international community for North Korea are vital in building trust. President Moon emphasized the importance of trust between the international community and North Korea, as well as trust between South and North Korea, and trust in the value of dialogue itself. Well, ladies and gentlemen, the path to complete denuclearization and permanent peace on the Korean Peninsula is never an easy one. Some of you may say it is an impossible job. But Koreans believe these goals can be and should be achieved with the determination to stride forward unwaveringly and to overcome the obstacles ahead. Ultimately, there is no alternative for Koreans, both South and North, to live in peace. I believe Koreans have learned enough lessons from previously missed opportunities to achieve these goals. The dialogue between the U.S. and North Korea at the highest level is a historic opportunity never seen before and may not come again if it fails this time. Inter-Korean dialogues and reconciliation measures cannot be sustainable unless the U.S.-North Korea relations settle in a peaceful manner. No matter how limited role that ROK and President Moon may have to mediate or facilitate or expedite the dialogue between the U.S. and North Korea. It will not be spared. Before closing, I'd like to once more express my gratitude to CSIS for their efforts in preparing this conference and to all participants from both sides who had to adjust their busy schedules to join us today. Please enjoy the conference today. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ambassador Lee. For our keynote conversation and address, I would now like you to join me in welcoming Ambassador Mark Lippert and U.S. Congressman Ami Barra of California. Please join me in welcoming them.
that's what the plan was. So, okay. So I thought I would open with um, a few remarks, and then we would get straight into to conversation. Um, <laughs> can you guys hear mic on? I'll, I'll just stand and do what I did as a college professor. So <laughs> one, one of the dangerous things is when you're in a room of folks that are smarter than you and have more knowledge on the subject matter, um, you've got to be really careful. So I thought I would give you the congressional perspective of how we're looking at the Korean Peninsula and you know, looking at long-term strategic decisions. Because when you're talking about Congress, you set the bar kind of low, and then we'll, we'll exceed it. So uh, I think a, a couple things. First off, I do want to thank CSIS and, and, and John Hamry and the Korea Foundation for, for pulling this together, but also for your exceptional work in, you know, creating a, a body of knowledge that we use on Congress, but also being a resource for, for those of us um, on the Hill. So thank you for, for that work and that sustained effort. Let me touch on a, a couple areas. One, um, you know, I do have the privilege of being the, the co-chair, the Democratic co-chair on the Congressional Study Group for Korea. Now we have four study groups in Congress, Japan, Germany, Europe, and Korea is the fourth study group. And folks have said, well, why Korea? And the reason why I think we formed this fourth study group is because when we think about the peninsula and we think about that path forward, we know it's going to take a long-term sustained level of engagement. And the reason why I think that is so important from the congressional perspective is when you think about a United States president, you're thinking about four years or eight years. When you're thinking about a Korean president, you're thinking about a five-year, one term. And if we're to take a realistic view of finding peace on the peninsula, it won't happen in four or eight years or, or a single five-year term. It'll require the long-term strategic engagement, the long-term goal, and the study group. And again, thank you to the Korea Foundation for, for being an integral part of helping us form the study group allows members of Congress in a sustained way to get to know their counterparts in the Korean Parliament, in the Assembly, and build those long-term relationships, as well as the thought leaders. Because you know, for me, this is um, my seventh year in Congress, so my fourth term. You know, it is conceivable that I will be there for a while. And you know, the best piece of advice I received when I first got elected to Congress is, you, don't, you can't know everything and know every region of the world, but find a few key areas where you can do a deep dive and become expert and build those relationships. And you know, when I think about the peninsula, we're thinking about long-term, if the ultimate goal is peace on the peninsula and denuclearization, it won't happen by the end of the Trump administration or the end of the Moon administration. But it's conceivable that a decade from now, a decade and a half from now, you've achieved that goal. And that's where Congress is really important, and that's where the study group, I think, gives us a vehicle by which to take members of Congress to Korea, as well as to welcome members of the Korean Parliament to the United States and build those deeper relationships. So that's one, long-term sustained engagement. A second piece is, let's be realistic here. I don't think any of us sees as the immediate next step, um, Chairman Kim saying, okay, well, I'm gonna get rid of all my nuclear weapons. I also don't see as the immediate next step, 
President Trump saying we're going to lift all sanctions. But can we frame a long-term goal of that is the long-term outcome, the long-term goal? It's going to take multiple steps to get there. What is that first immediate next step that starts to build a little bit of trust, a little bit of goodwill? Because you know, if we think about post Hanoi, I don't believe we can have a third summit dialogue between the United States and, um, and North Korea and walk away without some sort of victory. So, and that could be a small victory, that could be a small first step, but failure and having another Hanoi-like um, collapse, I think would actually put the, the dialogue in a deep freeze and really, you know, maybe not permanently damage the relationship, but probably set the, the relationship and dialogue back for several years, probably until uh, the next administration. So, you know, that would be the second thing. Let's not focus on the end goal. Let's agree on what that end goal is. And, you know, Victor Cha and I you know, had the privilege of, of writing an op-ed, laying some of this out in the Korean press. But let's think about what that first step is to at least get some forward momentum. A third piece is when we think about President Trump and Chairman Kim, the dialogue gets complicated because in most of these dialogues, you would have folks at the staff level working out most of the arrangements, getting to 95% agreement and having the framework of what that agreement is. And then the principals would enter and they would finalize things at the, the end. With Chairman Kim, with President Trump, we have two folks that want to be the negotiators. And you know, that adds a, a, an element. You know, on our side, we have to have that sustained engagement from the staff level, from our special envoy, et cetera. Um, and you know, that's the level of complexity on the North Korean side. You know, who is empowered to speak for Chairman Kim and, and lay things out? And you're seeing some of that turnover in their negotiating team. But that probably has to be a, a prerequisite at the staff level, getting pretty close to a place where if we go into a third dialogue, there aren't going to be any surprises. And that both the, the principals, President Trump and Chairman Kim, can come away with you know, that, 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 that victory. So that would be the third piece that we're looking at here. And then the fourth piece um, pertains not so much just to the North-South dialogue, but to the regional politics. And you know, the, the fourth piece that we're thinking a lot about is you know, our two close allies in the region, um, Korea and Japan. And you know, I was just there five, six weeks ago, and I would say that relationship, from my perspective, was at a low point, and at one of the low points that, that I've seen in my time in Congress. And, we have to think about how do we get these two key strategic allies on the same page with us. So as we look at this long-term sustained engagement, we're all speaking with one voice. So that's a little bit of how we're thinking about this from the congressional side. You know, we would, we're encouraging the Trump administration to take a bigger role in trying to find a path forward with Japan and, and Korea. But this is also a place where Congress has a role in trying to figure out how we smooth that relationship or bring it to a better place than it is right now. So I will stop with that. And, you know.
and, 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 and Mark's promised to keep it, keep it easy for me. And it, what we might need to do is bring out Grigs, Grigsby, the Basset Hound, to, to help do some Basset Hound diplomacy. Because everybody knows, Congressman, that Basset Hounds speak generally in Korean and in about 150 characters on Twitter. So anyway, so uh, um, well, thanks for the, the great opening. Uh, you can definitely tell you your, 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 your college professor roots. Uh, you, know the, you know the issues well. You have a great lexicon. And thank you also, I would just say, for your engagement and your many, many trips to the region. It, you know, you, you make the point about having worked as a, mem as a staff member in Congress, you make the point about Congress being there for the log game. But I, what I would add humbly is it takes strong engagement from Congress and your thank leadership you. there is to be commended. So thank you. Um, maybe just one to start, one follow-up on your very good op-ed with Victor Chaw entitled A Small Deal Within a Big Deal. And you outlined it a little bit um, at the, the top. Um, you talk, you say basically Libya-style deal isn't uh, feasible. You then basically say in, uh, in the first, first instance, we should get a deal on the goal, right? Disarmament for sanctions relief. And then take some tangible steps uh, in terms of trying to generate some momentum. In other words, the North Koreans give up some part of their program, and we get into this conversation. That's that's the crux of it. So, just to follow up a little bit about how you are thinking in Congress to get the two sides to start this process uh, that you outline. I, I I think the the next real tangible step, and and I've shared this with my counterparts in Korea. Um, I think this is a time for um, the Republic, uh, President Moon, to, to step in and continue a dialogue and, and, and keep that going. You know, outside of the platitudes that um, President Trump and, and Chairman Kim have been sharing, my sense is there isn't a conversation going, taking place right now between the United States and, and North Korea. And in the short term, I think this is where the, the South Koreans can really step up and, and try to keep that some dialogue going, you know, and, and I, I think timing is, is of the, the essence because I don't think we can go past um, the end of this calendar year without having a, a, a third dialogue if we're going to have a third dialogue. I think our politics get too complicated going into an election year, um, but the, the, the Republic also will be entering an election cycle um, fairly shortly as well, so I think the, 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 the Korean politics also get complicated. So given that time frame, that's six months. Um, and I think to jumpstart this and start moving it, it forward, at least to get the, the, the conversation started again, I think this is a place where you know, the, the Moon administration um, can, can really take the lead and be helpful. Okay, so let me pick up on a thread you just identified uh, in, in your, your last answer, a very interesting one that I, I get a lot of questions about in terms of US domestic politics. and elections starting kind of heighten and sharpen those questions, right? You, you get them a lot. You know, how, how much of a factor is North Korea policy in your, in your calculation, just either on the presidential race or the, the, the congressional side? How many, you know, people ask you in your district, you know, down in constituent politics, and then just about South Korea and the alliance and all of that. How, do, how, does, how does the, can you expand a little bit about on the political side as well? You know, most of um, the American public probably doesn't spend a lot of time thinking about American foreign policy. And I, and I think that, that is certainly a shame. Um, I think the time they think about it is when we're on the brink of war or we're engaged in a war. So, you know, two years ago, 
you saw a lot more about the Korean Peninsula mm -hmm. when you were having the fire and fury rhetoric. Yeah, that's dropped off a, a bit. Um, so it, it falls to us as members of Congress. And you know, my constituents, when I do my town halls, they're not asking me about that. They're yelling me at a, about impeachment and, <laughs> and other things. Um, so it, it falls to me to explain to them why this is so important, why American leadership abroad is um, essential. And you know, in, in, the, in the context, if we think about American leadership in the post-World War II environment. I mean, what we accomplished was remarkable, right? I mean, that 70 years is an anomaly when you think about world history of constant conflicts between great powers. The fact that we won the Cold War um, without really having to engage in a kinetic conflict was pretty remarkable. That is what makes America such a, a remarkable nation, and we can't withdraw. You know, what we did um, on the Korean Peninsula um, stepping up to protect South Korea, remarkable. Um, it may be different in the next 70 years, but the world needs an American in engagement and that American leadership with, with our values. And people get that. Um, and I, I think as we go into this presidential cycle, I mean, I, I don't, this is going to be about domestic political issues, right? If you think about the, the folks on the Democratic side, the I guess now 24, 25 um, candidates. You, you don't have an announcement here today, do you? No, I'm not, I, oh, okay, I'm not okay. running for president. Okay, I just so. was just making sure. So um, it, it's important, though, that we don't withdraw into ourselves, that, that we continue to be there, and the world needs us. And let, let, me, let me follow up on that thread in terms of leadership in the world, Congress, Congress's role, and you mentioned values as well. Um, one of the areas in which Congress has led traditionally is in the area of human rights. Started the, 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 the bureau uh, over at the State Department that covers this. Uh, it produced the staff member, the great staff member who became ambassador to, uh, on human rights, Bob King, who's here in the audience today. So how should we be thinking, in, in your op-ed, you talk all about denuclearization, uh, you talk about that process. How should we be thinking about North Korean human rights in that context? You know, I, if we want to be the, the world leader on human rights, we have to keep um, you know, some of the, the, the tragic history of human rights in, in North Korea in mind. I don't think that can be our starting point of negotiation. Um, I, I'm a believer in if you help economic development, if you help build an economy, you then start to address some of those human rights issues. And you know, I'm thinking about this from Chairman Kim's perspective and, you know, and the, the art of dialogue and the art of negotiation, you know, kind of using those principles of Aikido, you have to be able to look at the world from um, your adversary or your, your opponent's perspective. And if I'm looking at it from his perspective, he's accomplished his nuclear capabilities right now. Um, and I think he's shifting towards the economic piece of it. And I think that's the carrot that, that we have. If a decade, two decades from now, we want to find peace on the peninsula, we're going to have to engage in economic development. And, and I think the South, South Koreans get that as well. While we're doing, this is a roundabout way of answering your question, while we're doing that, we have to make sure that we're not um, losing sight of the, the humanitarian piece of this, where it's not that the spoils are just going to a small handful of folks in, in North Korea if we are engaging in economic development, but rather how do we bring 
the, these masses uh, along with them. So. Absolutely, and we are at a think tank, so roundabout answers are perfectly acceptable right. here. So, um, the 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 I think that's an excellent response. And let, let me ask you just about one thread that you just mentioned. Um, it's the economic development piece, right. right? And you know, how should we be thinking about North Korean economic development? You know, you have this kind of classic argument of, hey, if we engage, we can reopen some of the inter-Korean projects. Uh, that might, uh, you know, help. Uh, bring progress to kind of the the values debate that you're talking about inside North Korea. Others argue that we really need to maintain sanctions, uh, maintain, hold the line firmly, really press the North Koreans on on the human rights issue in the multilateral fora, but also bring this into the negotiations. How do we think about economic development as a catalyst for change, and or uh, you know a, a a an instrument uh, for Pushing, um, going, pushing the North Koreans on the denuclear uh, front. Right, so, so the sanctions have worked, right? I mean, the, and, and they've been biting sanctions, certainly some of the secondary sanctions. But the goal of the sanctions are, are never going to be that North Korea is going to give up their nuclear capabilities. I, I mean, just from my perspective, and you know, I, I think we would be uh, kidding ourselves if we thought, okay, well, at some point they're just going to, going to lay down their, their nuclear capabilities. But the sanctions have been effective in getting them to the table a, a, a little bit. And again, if we take Kim at, at his word, he does want to shift towards um, addressing the, the economy in North Korea. And yeah, we know that they've got a lot of natural resources that um, you know, we just have to look at the, the, the southern part of the peninsula and look at where the Republic of Korea was in 1970 and where they are today to, to understand what's possible. Um, we also, this is where we have to take the, the, the long view. So I do think, you know, and I'm speaking for myself here, um, that, you know, if there was a credible first or second step to destroy some of the nuclear assets, um, you know, opening some of these joint projects potentially starts to, to, to send the right, the right message. Again, we'd be at a different place if, um, if North Korea hadn't already obtained nuclear capabilities, but they already have. And you know, again, you know, if, we're, if we're taking a decade, two decade view here, I think you've got to take those baby steps. And, and you know, again, this is where the Republic of Korea is going to have a huge role. I mean, we'll certainly have a role if you know, we, we want to see that vision of some sort of economy um, in North Korea um, and some sort of engagement with the rest of the world. But a large part of that responsibility is going to fall to South Korea. And you mentioned sanctions, and this gets to a little bit the news of the day. Um, just in terms of linkages or exa global examples of other programs or issues around sanctions and nuclear weapons, Iran, right? Uh, the Iran issue, you've dealt with that in Congress. Um, you've got the North Korea issue. You know, what do you say to either constituents or people in Korea or around the world who want a compare and contrast between uh, the two cases and or the messages that we're sending with our actions towards Iran to the North Koreans and vice versa? Look, I, I think we did, whether you liked the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal, or didn't like it, 
I think we did irreparable damage to our ability to negotiate by, in one administration, inking a deal, and then a new administration coming in and pulling out of a deal. And if you're Chairman Kim and you're sitting in, in North Korea, you have to be paying attention to that to say, okay, well, yeah, if we agree to something, well, a new president comes in and they may just toss it out. And yeah, that, our word has to mean something. And, you know, and, and again, this is where Congress is so important because, again, you know, Congress is going to be here uh, you know, for, for the long haul. And why, you know, if, if I were to give the Trump administration a piece of advice, and I've got lots of advice, but um, in, in the, as, as we're dealing with Iran, involve Congress in this conversation. And let's not make this a, a partisan issue. Let's make it a, an issue of American interest. I think, so, so one is, you know, what happened with the JCPOA. I think that's something that, that ties into a parallel as we think about how we move forward with North Korea. Um, you know, a second piece is there's a, a, we're trying to prevent Iran from getting nuclear weapons. We know North Korea already has nuclear weapons. And let's learn from decades of negotiations with, with North Korea and think about how we approach that. Because I think all of us agree that a, a nuclear-armed Iran would be a very dangerous um, precedent and it would set off a nuclear arms race in the Middle East at, at, in a very unstable region. Are there lessons that we can learn from the history of negotiations with North Korea than, that we can take into the hope is that, that we start a dialogue with, with Iran as well, or, or restart a dialogue. Um, so I think those are, those are two things. I mean, the, the, the third is when we're thinking about the Middle East, you know, I've already talked about the Korean Peninsula, we have to take a long view, long sustained engagement. Um, with the Middle East, it's gonna be a longer, more sustained level of engagement. And this is where, again, what was um, the beauty of the Cold War was it you know, maybe changed a little bit on the margins from one administration to the next, but there was a strategy, there was a bipartisan strategy, Congress was engaged, and it was a, a long-term level of sustained engagement. I think we have to uh, take both these regions in a very similar way. And we don't have to do this by ourselves, and I think we would be foolish if we thought we could engage in both these regions by ourselves and we, we really should engage our allies in, the, the re, in both of these regions, but we also should not be afraid of bringing our adversaries in, because there's not a long-term solution on the Korean Peninsula that's not gonna involve the Chinese or the Russians, and we have to think about what that level of engagement looks like. Well, let, let me, um, let's use your comments, very, very artful comments on the long game uh, to pivot to the alliance, the USROK alliance and some of the questions there. Um, I'm actually guilty as the moderator of the thing that I uh, hated as ambassador, which was I'd be in my office in Seoul, I'd have guests from out of town, I, we'd be sitting in Seoul talk, you know, about South Korea and I'd get 75 questions about North Korea, right? And I said, you know, there is this other piece uh, in which you are sitting that's a global example of success. Uh, it's a great example of the US and Korea playing the long game together. So talk, you, you've been in the region relatively recently. What is your sense of where the USROK alliance is? Where are some of the challenges? Where are some of the opportunities? Um, you know, the people-to-people the -people side, you know, the fondness of the, the, the Koreans towards the United States, I think, is still very strong. I think, 
you know, when I was there in, at the end of April, the conversation around um, Section G32 tariffs was, was very real. And, and, and some of the concerns, you know, the, the Koreans in, in many ways feeling, but look, we re renegotiated chorus. We've you know, tried to meet you in, with good faith. And you know, why are you, um, you know, including one of your close allies in the steel and tariff, steel and aluminum tariff conversation. Um, I think that's still very real. I think that you know, does put a damper on, on the relationship. Um, and you know, our hope, you know, certainly as a, a member of Congress who does think the importance of these trading relationships is, is hugely beneficial, not just to the Republic of Korea, but also to um, the United States. Um, we have to f figure out that path forward. You know, we're happy to see um, the administration back off on the 232 for, with Mexico and Canada, but you know, I think we we would encourage the administration not to 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 back off on um, on on the Koreans as well. That you know, these are our friends, and you know, our you know economies are intertwined, and you know, the and course has been good for both countries. Well, let me ask you then, uh, but you've, you've, you've touched on trade. Another key uh, element that the Congress has oversight on and was intricately involved in is spending, right? And right. so that leads to the burden sharing uh, conversation, the SMA, Special Measures Agreement. Um, you had, we had a long negotiation last year. If you believe the press reports, the Korean side was prepared to go up in terms of its burden sharing. Um, where, what role do you think Congress has in this, one, and then two, um, where do you think we should end up on this, this burden sharing uh, agreement? And we'll hear more from General Brooks later today on this, yeah. so, uh, you know, we're, we're, just, we're just really just previewing the later panel here, so. Look, I, I, I don't think the President's wrong to say that we should have some level of, of burden sharing and, and, and partnership. And, and I think the Koreans have done an admirable job try, trying to address that. Um, without putting an actual number on what, what that looks like, I, I also think we can't move the goalposts once. Um, it's like, okay, here's where we are. And I think we have to be conscious of Korean domestic politics as well in, in the, the larger realm. Um, I think this, you know, it is in our interest to, to maintain this partnership. It is our interest to maintain our, our troop levels there. And you touched on an earlier issue of domestic politics. And, you know, you do hear uh, the, the U.S. voting public sometimes saying, why do we have all these troops around the world? And again, it is important for us as members of Congress to say, yes, we're there to protect the Korean Peninsula. But we're also there to protect the United States interests in, in, in the region. And if we're not there, you know, it, it may be a lot worse and, and, and a lot more costly. So yeah, that's an area where um, yeah, we at times have disagreements with the administration. You know, I think many of us in Congress were very worried that you know, President Trump may have reduced the troop presence um, on the peninsula, which is why you've seen you know, my colleague Ruben Gallego and, and others put in provisions that you know, try to put a stop if the president drops below a, a certain number, and I think it was 22,000. Um, and, and I think that is not a Democratic or, or Republican issue. I think we, we, we Congress, believe it, it's important for us to maintain that presence. And 
All right, so notwithstanding some comments here and there from constituents asking legitimate questions about U.S. troop presence overseas, not limited to Korea, right. your point is that in Congress, by and large, broad bipartisan support for troops in Korea and an understanding of, of the, uh, the value of the alliance. Very, very much so, and, and we think um, it's beneficial, obviously, to maintain peace on the peninsula, but we have lots of interest in the region. And, that troop presence is incredibly important. Okay. We're getting down to the end here, maybe just one or two more questions, but one is this gets to kind of alliance equities and often uh, what you hear from the, Korea, uh, the Korean public at times is, you know, people talk, uh, Koreans themselves will talk about Korea as the shrimp between the whales, right? Uh, large country, now I, I quibble with that from time to time. They have a top 15 economy, uh, one of the world's most capable militaries. I think BTS is on the verge of taking over the world culturally. <laughs> so, you know, so there's maybe some room for argument there, but how should the Koreans, you know, think about this issue? You know, not to, not to, um, put yourself as a Korean, but just if, if you were getting that question and you said, well, we feel caught, we feel caught on THAAD, we feel caught on the Asian Infrastructure Bank, now we're feeling caught between U.S. and China on trade and Huawei, what would your response be? Yeah, so I don't think of um, the Republic as the, the shrimp between two wells because they are uh, one of the world's leading economies, one of the most innovative economies in the world. Um, and you know, certainly one of our close friends. Landmass-wise, they may be s smaller than um, the America or China, but they certainly are punching above their weight class. And, and I think we have to think of Korea as a, a partner in you know, how we, we engage, not just in the, the issue of China or you know, regional politics, but also how we, and we've had these conversations, how we partner with the Koreans to help solve some of the world's challenges. You know, they're starting to, you know, become a donor nation, and you know, their their aid and development work around the world, and you know, sending um, resources to, to to tragedies that happen and, and disasters around the world. And in the 21st century, we ought to look for the way we all partner together. Countries that share similar values of democracy, of free markets, um, of you know, just the value of human rights and dignities and, and you know, in this century, I think it's not the United States going alone. It's the United States with its partners. And I use that term partners because we have to be in this together. It's not the U.S. dictating, hey, here's what, the, what Korea ought to be doing. It's coming together and having conversations to s solve mutual challenges. Um, I, you know, getting back to the crux of your question, I. I don't think Korea is going to have a major trading relationship with China. Um, you know, Korea is going to have a major trading relationship with Japan, um, and we shouldn't be thinking of Korea as a either-or. I mean, we saw, you know, in, in in many ways, we saw how China responded when we placed the THAAD batteries there, and you know that that to me is not a what a, ma a major nation does um, if, if they want that partnership. Um, so, you know, I, I don't, I, I think if we think about this 21st century trading relationship, when we think about China vis-a-vis -vis Korea or Japan or even India, um, it's not either or. And for us, it's not either or either. So the, the closer we're working with our allies that share similar values, 
um, the, the better off we are and the, the, the more likely we will get the outcomes that we want. Right. No, thanks, Congressman. Let me just ask, uh, in the, the few minutes we have left, just two pretty uh, quick responses. I've got two last questions. The first is, um, first, you know, uh, to pick up on your thread about how we work together in a more on a more open and inclusive relationship. One of the areas that I often proposed was deeper cooperation on science, technology, space, global health. You bring a decades-long uh, experience in science and medicine from your background, your medical doctor, your vice chair of the House Committee on Science, Space, and Technology, if I'm not mistaken. Is this an area where we should be working uh, more constructively with the Koreans and more deeply? Absolutely, right, on issues of solving, you know, whether that's climate change or you know, in the realm of space, if our goal is to, to get human travel to Mars and, and beyond, we're not gonna do this by ourselves. These are um, things where we're gonna have to be working with the, the best around the world. And you know, we've seen the, the remarkable innovations that come out of the, the um, out of the Republic of Korea, and we should have that partnership, and this should be a multilateral um, type of relationship. Again, you know, climate change doesn't just affect the United States, it affects all of us. If we wanna get to, to Mars, or if we wanna solve um, you know, food and water and security around the world, we'll take a, a global effort. Okay, we are out of time. Thanks for that. the answer. That is fantastic music to my ears at least um, let me just to get off the stage here and you're wanted back in Congress but I would say this now I know you represent a northern California district so but you have some Cali Southern California roots I do. so you have some credibility on co uh, commenting on Southern California issues for those who don't know there's a big split in California Northern California so I went to college there I'm identified as a Northern California so I'm not allowed to talk about anything in Los Angeles but you have you have equities in both um, any thoughts on the season that LA Dodger pitcher Hyun Jin Ryu is having before you get off the stage here. He's having an amazing season. What, nine and one? Yeah, unbelievable. An, an ERA around one. one. It, it is remarkable. I can't say that when I'm back, back in the district, <laughs> but my dad's first job was as a, an usher at, at Dodger, or actually at the Coliseum when they first moved oh, out wow. from, from Brooklyn. So I grew up a Dodger fan. Dodger fan, and so Dodger Korea, it's all coming together exactly, for you. Exactly, right, yeah. Absolutely. And that's how we're going to find peace, right? Through baseball, through K-pop, through Korean soap operas. That's very true, very true. No, a big, big, uh, big believer in co the cultural influence on fomenting uh, peace and security in the world. And so with that, I just want to thank you for your thank leadership. You. Thanks for a great session here today. Cool. I won't say go Dodgers, but I will say, you know, uh, here's to any and all good things Koreans do in the state of California, and especially in your congressional district. Great, so thank thanks you. again, Congressman. Thanks. invite all of our guests to join us in the for a lunch reception being served now in the reception area. Mm -hmm.